Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. I'm Pete Urban, a climate scientist. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Hannah Ritchie, who is head of research at Our World in Data. Our World in Data is among the favorite websites of both myself and Pete, and it is a a set of very powerful, easy-to-use tools for visualizing important trends across the world and within countries that allows the user to really get a sense and unpack environmental, economic, and epidemiological trends at both big pictures and at small levels. And Hannah, as head of research there, has a key role in connecting the data to the website. And our conversation here, more than any other conversation we've had thus far on this podcast, goes beyond climate change to really think about the state of the world and the direction and the trends of key conditions in the world, as well as how widespread understanding is of those trends. We do bring it back to climate change, though, picking up an article that Hannah wrote titled Stop Telling Our Kids They're Going to Die from Climate Change. So we also touch on optimism and pessimism and how part of the reason many people are pessimistic is they're unaware of some of the very positive trends that are occurring in the world. We're not just overly optimistic, though. We do touch on some of the more worrying trends that we're seeing. It's a very very visual episode in a way. We talk about a lot of trends and data, but I think Hannah did a good job of having those statistics to hand and and giving us a good sense of it verbally. So we'll have several links in the show notes of this episode, and we encourage listeners even more so than at other times to hop online and explore our world and data in general and some of the specific images and graphs and articles that we point to in this episode uh, as background and compliments to the conversation with Hannah Ritchie. Today, we are joined by Dr. Hannah Ritchie. Hannah is a senior researcher at the Oxford Martin Program in Global Development and the head of research at Our World and Data. She works at the intersection of environmental sustainability and human well-being, addressing climate change, energy systems, food, agriculture, and more. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I think we usually open with um, just a quick question on your background. How did you get to where you are today? I guess it's a bit of a long story. So I grew up in Scotland and basically did all of my education at the University of Edinburgh. So I did a bachelor's degree in environmental geoscience at Edinburgh. And then from there, I moved on to do a master's in carbon management. So very much focused on climate change. I think at that point, I had the kind of scientific background, but I kind of lacked the business economic side of it. I think what that master's program really gave me was bringing in the economics business side of it and mixing it with the science. So I find a lot of value in that. And then from there, again, I stayed at Edinburgh and did a PhD. And I think the focus of the PhD there was to kind of bridge this, which I now do a lot, just bridging this like environmental lens with the human lens. So it was very much focused on sustainable food systems. But not just the environmental impacts of the food systems, but bringing in the human well-being, nutrition question of not only how do we produce food without wrecking the environment, but how do we feed everyone? So a population of eight, nine, ten million people 
And with a nutritionally adequate diet without wrecking the planet at the same time. So again, from there, I could see that I was trying to piece together more than just the environmental bit. How I got into Arwood and data is I strangely finished my PhD very early and had a lot of time to kill. And at the time, the team was incredibly small. So it was basically just Max, Esteban, one web developer. So very small, very early stages. And I could see that on the website, a lot of the economics topics were covered very well and some of the health topics, but stuff on climate, energy, food, it was kind of like bare bones, bare minimum, because there was so few people on the team. So basically, I emailed Max and like quite cheekily said, hey, I saw you've got these pages on like environmental stuff. They look kind of empty. Uh, Could I fill them? And thankfully, he gave me the opportunity and he said yes. And it's just snowballed from there where I slowly built up doing more and more Arwadden data and basically just become my, my full-time job. Great. Well, for those who don't know, Arwadden data is, I think, it's a fantastic resource. It's probably the first place I look for data and some of the context about what's going on with human development health and environment issues. But could you give our listeners a bit of a, more of a better idea of uh, what our world and data is and how it originated? Yeah, so our world and data is a, a web publication. So we're a website, ourworldanddata.org. And it was started by Max Roser. He was at University of Oxford at the time, still is, but was doing a kind of normal postdoc program and started doing this as a kind of side project. And the motivation for it really stems from the fact that the world faces a large number of big problems. And often there's a lot of research that already exists that allows us to understand those problems, make progress, begin to solve them. But often there's this barrier between where the research lives and the data lives and how it actually reaches people that can use it to make a difference. So the motivation for it is bringing out a lot of the the questions and answers that are already there and actually bringing them out to the public, to journalists, to policymakers. So we kind of see ourselves as sitting between academia and research and then the general public. So almost this kind of translation service of like very much bringing it to a mass audience where it can, can have an impact. And we do it across a really broad range of topics that we frame as the world's largest problems. So I cover all of the environment stuff, but we also do poverty, inequality, global health, violence and war. So really covering the really broad scope. But yeah, trying to bridge this gap between what's known in kind of academic fields and what the public needs to know to make a difference. Now, one person who I think made a big difference to how I see the world, and I'm kind of wondering if it's if he was an inspiration for you guys as well, is um, Hans Rosling. Is that the case? Did he, did he make an impact on you as well? Yeah, definitely. Like I think for our written data, but also me on a very personal level, I think, and maybe we'll touch on this later, at the end of my environmental degree, I was pretty in a pretty bad place in terms of like how I've, I saw the state of the world. Because I think for just for years, I'd just been bombarded with these really negative trends. And I think I'd never really taken the time to step back and really look at the bigger picture of like where the world is today relative to where it was in the past or where we're actually the trajectory of travel that we're going in. So I think I took a lot of the environmental changes that I'd seen, which were nearly always moving in the wrong direction. And I, in my head, I just did this basic extrapolation of, well, of course, if the environment stuff's getting worse, then probably poverty and hunger and global health are probably just always getting worse as well. 
So I, I basically kind of had came around to the conclusion that probably the world was in the worst state it had ever been in, which now looking back is just is almost the complete flip of that. That was until I discovered Hans Rosling, who if anyone's not familiar, I would look him up on YouTube because he's a great find, where basically he just took this kind of large global data on and told the great stories of where we are today compared to where we were in the past. And whether you look at child mortality or extreme poverty or hunger, we're just in a vastly, vastly better position than we were at basically any point in human history. So he really profoundly changed the way that I saw the world and very much inspired the work I do today. We'll talk about some of those broader trends in environment and food and development here in a moment. But I want to start first by going right into climate change, which is, of course, the topic that our podcast usually focuses on. And uh, you mentioned a moment ago that uh, toward the end of your your PhD that you were in, a, I think you said a dark space thinking about the trends of the world, or m- maybe that was your, your earlier education track. But then as you dived into the data, your view turned around. And what came to my attention, I think it was about a year ago, was this article in Wired magazine, Stop Telling Kids They'll Die from Climate Change. And, you know, you open the article with some of these shocking statistics about what young people believe about climate change and the future of climate change. A good portion of young people believe that humanity is doomed or they're he- hesitant to have children. But you wrote that there seems to have been a breakdown in communication of what our future entails. None of the climate scientists I know and trust, who surely know the risks better than almost anyone, are resigned to a future of oblivion. Most of them have children. I find it alarming that most young people today feel that they do not have a future. So what do you think happened with climate change communication? Where did this breakdown occur? How is it and why is it that so many people, especially young people, but even older people, at least in my personal experience, have a really dark, pessimistic view of where climate change will probably take humanity in upcoming decades? Yeah, I think, as I said in the article, I think there has been a breakdown in communication. And I think that's very evident just from polling some of the top climate scientists out there that work on this stuff every day. Like, I think you can see from their behaviours that they're not necessarily resigned to doomsday future based on the fact that they often have children and very young children. And I would assume that they wouldn't do that on the basis of thinking that there would be no earth to live on in 50 years. And I don't, I don't think they do that lately. I don't think they make this decision lately. I, it's not that they deny that there's a big problem, like they've dedicated their lives to it. But I think they have hope and optimism that we can work our way out of it, which is kind of very core to my message, that it's not inevitable that we turn this around quite quickly, but it's definitely possible. And I have a lot of faith that we can. Where I think some of the potential disconnect with the kind of public communication comes from is... I think one key one is the miscommunication, I would say, of what targets and thresholds mean. I think the world has set a target of two degrees, possibly 1.5 degrees if we can make it, which most scientists understand as a target. I think the way often that's communicated to the public is as a threshold where if we pass 1.5 degrees, it's over and, and we just give up because basically the planet becomes unlivable. Of course, scientists just don't see it in that way, and that's just not true. The likelihood is we are going to pass 1.5 degrees, and most climate scientists would agree on that. 
But if you're in the mindset that that 1.5 degrees is a threshold, then of course you're going to think that we're doomed because we are probably going to pass it. And I think that very much feeds into how you view progress and an effort towards it. I think most scientists see it as every 0.1 degree is worth fighting for and we will fight for it because we know that it can make a massive difference. But if you don't see it as this kind of incremental process, but instead of this threshold or this tipping point, which some people in the public do, then I can see how you would perceive it as a kind of doomsday scenario. I think maybe another reason that there's a a potential difference between climate scientists is they've kind of been screaming about this and calling for action for a really long time. And for most of that time have been largely ignored, which has obviously been incredibly frustrating. But maybe in the last couple of years, they're actually seeing that, oh, people are getting on board. Stuff is now actually happening after us fighting for this for decades the last couple of years, like stuff is actually really, really moving and potentially moving quickly. So there is maybe a little bit of optimism in that that a lot of the public just haven't seen because they haven't been as ingrained in the process and seen its evolution. So that might potentially give climate scientists a bit more optimism than general public. And I think because most of the sustainability stuff, not just in climate, is actually just moving now so quickly. If you're looking at it and extrapolating based on stuff that was happening five years ago, like you're way out of date. You need to be looking at data in the last couple of years to actually understand what's happening. A few episodes ago, if if everything gets broadcast in the order we're recording, it'll be three episodes ago. We spoke to one of the authors of that paper that you linked to that did the survey across 10 countries around climate anxiety among youth. And that's one impact of this breakdown in communication that appears to have happened between scientists and and the general public. That's one impact that you cite in your Wired article. What's your take on both climate anxiety as well as what are some of the other uh, effects that inaccurate perceptions of climate risks can have on people, particularly young people? I think climate anxiety is a real one. And I think that I like I want to make very clear that part of the reason like I have so much sympathy for this because I have definitely been in that position at the end of my degree program like I was incredibly anxious. I was like pretty much ready to walk away from the field because I really just felt it was very hopeless and that I probably couldn't make a difference. So I totally sympathize with the feelings that are that are given there. I think what was potentially interesting from that survey was the lack of geographical differences across the world, they did not necessarily reflect on to who was most at risk from climate impacts. So those in richest countries seem to be feel just as doomed or as if their future was just as much in peril as those in lower income countries, which was interesting. I think some of the way that this manifests or I think what some of the outcomes of this could be, which is dangerous and why I think I'm so actively trying to counter it is I think if you're in that mindset, it can very much lead to a, well, there's nothing we can do, we can just give up, which obviously is not going to get us anywhere. But I think that's also potentially dangerous in that it's a somewhat privileged position to be in to make that decision in the sense that if you're in a rich country and you basically resign yourself to, well, there's nothing we can do, we just need to let climate change run and let's just go on with our lives, basically give up. If you're in a rich country, realistically, you might be okay. But if rich countries make that decision, we're actually resigning a lot of people to maybe not being okay. Like we actually, a lot of people in the world can't afford for us to say we're doomed. Let's just stop driving action now. Like we just can't let that happen. 
And I think we're in danger of falling into that. I think another potential reaction to it is, which is, again, very understandable. If you feel like you're in the position where you're really doomed, the temptation is to reach for very extreme solutions. There's a kind of like a panic button where, oh, like I'm scrambling here. I'm clueless what to do. Let's just reach for really extreme solutions. And I think one, I think that can often have really bad backfiring consequences. And two, I think the key with driving climate action is we need to get as many people on board as possible. And I think the extreme solutions often just alienate a really large percentage of the population, which again is a risk for driving widespread climate action. I guess there's been a fundamental change in communication over the past, well, circa 2011 period. We switched from a pre-social media, pre-Twitter world, where it was top-down journalism-based communication, to a bottom-up Twitter-based communication. Like, how much do you think this is playing into driving this? I think this was already coming in in terms of media communication before Twitter, but I think just a key part of it is the frequency with which you get updates now. With such frequent updates, I think it's now very hard, especially when it comes to stuff like natural disasters. And this very much fed into my perception of the world where now it's just very hard to understand, is this increase in exposure to disasters that I'm seeing, is that a real trend? Or is that me just being exposed to more people talking about it and getting more headlines? And I think especially when I was going through my degree, I had this somewhat unfortunate lineup of me becoming increasingly interested in climate change at the same time as the media becoming increasingly interested in climate change. And I think what that meant was I definitely perceived increased reporting as just this massive rise in natural disasters and natural disaster deaths, which just did not give me an accurate perception of what was actually happening. I think that's one thing that's feeding into this miscommunication is the frequency Again, with the separation of mainstream media with Twitter, I think it's, and we're all very in danger of this, it's becoming very much entrenched in a particular bubble or way of thinking and not exposing ourselves to other sides of the debate. So if you only engage in climate circles that are really, really feeding this kind of doomsday scenario, then it's obviously very easy to come entrenched in that. On the flip side, it's completely true that if you surround yourself with kind of climate deniers, it's all going to be fine, then you very much reach the opposite conclusion. But I think it's now just very easy to become sucked into like a particular mindset. Yeah, and I guess we'll be switching over to data now, but I guess that's the thing on Twitter and in media, it's it's images that, that rule. Um, so flaming backgrounds to people playing golf. It's quite easy to, in a few slides, to generate an impression of doom in your talk or scouting through your internet. But I think you hinted at a statistic, which I found I think is really, really relevant, which is from our world data, the decadal average of number of deaths from disaster. One would think this has been going up and up and up and the world population has been going up and up and up. But that's not the case, is it? No, it's not. And I think this was something I totally got wrong in the past. So I had been doing an earth science degree at one of the world's top universities. I was like straight A student basically studied this to death for four or five years. And I think coming out of university, if you told me, can you draw a graph of what's happening to deaths from natural disasters? I would have drawn it in a completely wrong direction. 
which for me is just so astounding that like you could come out of a earth science degree at one of the world's top universities and not even know what direction that line was moving in. But yeah, if you look at death from natural disasters over the last century, they're very much going down and going down very sharply. Like, I mean, you get annual spikes and they're often earthquakes. So it's not really fair to compare year to year. But if you look at kind of decadal averages, it's like something like a tenfold decline over the last century, like really significant decline. And what I really want to stress here is that's not any evidence that climate change is not happening or disasters are not getting worse. People often use that chart and they try to use that chart to make that point. That's definitely not the point. What that chart is showing is that climate change and environmental changes are not the only thing that's going on in the world. We have to combine that with human adaptation and how societies are developing and economic growth. Basically, economic growth and improving resilience to disasters has meant that despite disasters staying the same or even becoming more intense in recent years, we have managed to protect ourselves and result in a decline in deaths. So that's not about the change in frequency or intensity of disasters. It's about us becoming much more resilient to them. Yeah, I think that change in resilience, I think, is one of the most underappreciated facts of the, of the world. And what are some of the other key statistics and facts that people should be aware of thinking about climate, the environment and human welfare? I think the decline in natural disasters deaths is key. And I think understanding why there's been that decline is key moving forward with climate change. I think one of the biggest risks of climate change is that we, in the rest of the world, we don't alleviate poverty quick enough. And so we have this climate change superimposed on communities that still haven't been lifted out of poverty. And in terms of those deaths from natural disasters, you could see a reversal if we don't address global poverty. So I think that's really, really key in this climate change discussion. I think some of the other key ones, especially when it comes to climate change, is the food question. So when you look at how food systems have changed over the last 50 years predominantly, they've changed massively. And I think one of the biggest changes there has just been an increase in productivity and yields, which as we move forward with climate change and a growing human population is going to become even more important as we're going to need to develop more resilient food systems to climate change. That's one that I found very striking. And we're looking at some US crop yields for wheat, and it was something like a factor 10. It was over a century. It was something in that ballpark. I remember just being completely blown away. Yeah. I mean, if you look at crop yields, basically since kind of agricultural revolution, they were basically stagnant for thousands of years. And it's really only in the last maybe century for rich countries, but for most of the world, it's been the last 50 years. And you've literally looking at a three, four, five, even 10 fold increase uh, in yields. So common reaction that I have when I share with people information often from our world and data or elsewhere that demonstrates these consistently positive trends over the last 100 or 200 years in the variables and the factors in the, in the measurable outcomes that people would probably care about most, life expectancy, child mortality, nutrition, et cetera. A common response from those who were pessimistic to begin with say, well, but what about distribution? Right, so you're looking at these average of average effects, and and the world is it appears to be getting better. But isn't it the case that global inequality 
whether it's measured by income or life expectancy, et cetera, is getting worse. How are the trends in, in global inequality shaping up over the last few decades? Yeah, I think that's a common concern and it's a perfectly valid one. I think what people get wrong there is that actually the world is moving very much in the opposite direction to what people would assume. I think the world would assume that these inequality gaps are growing and growing and growing. And that might be the case if you're looking maybe at the very, very top 0.01% where the billionaires are kind of running away. But when you really look at it across most of the global population, we've kind of went through history where for most of human history, most people were poor and had pretty poor um, living conditions and outcomes. We then went through this, like very much this divergence and this growing inequality where really, if you looked at the income distribution, you would get basically these two humps where you had some rich people and then there was no one in the middle and then just loads of people were poor and still very much stuck in poverty. Where we've seen over the last 50 years, basically what's happened is nearly everyone's shifted towards the middle. So you've actually seen this very much this convergence towards the middle where most of the world are kind of living on these middle incomes. Now, of course, there's still a large amount of people in extreme poverty. Like, And by extreme, we're talking about less than $1.90 a day. So by no means have we completely closed that gap. But I think what's clear is that we are actually moving to a converging world rather than a, a diverging world. And that's not just when it comes to income. If you look to look at life expectancy, for example, across most, actually every region in the world, life expectancy is now well over 60 years. We've just, across child mortality, life expectancy, poverty, basically all of the kind of human well-being trends are very much converging rather than diverging. I wonder if the convergence is maybe the right way. To, I think that is the right way of thinking about it, because I, I sense that since about the 80s in the West, things have got quite a bit less good for the middle and lower classes in um, America and Europe. So I guess from the 19th century onwards, great improvements. But then from circa 70s, 80s, things might not have been looking quite as rosy. So I wonder if some of the pessimism comes from there. Because, I mean, you know, yes, huge changes in China and India, Indonesia, etc. But the working class in France and Germany and Britain, a bit different. I think, yeah, I think when a country goes through a period of very rapid development, as that slows down, you probably would at least get the perception that things are not going so well. So I think it very much comes from these changes in growth rate from countries that had previously developed very quickly, and then we're seeing other countries catch up. What I think is interesting is when you look at global data, so if you poll people across the world on, is the world getting better or worse, or are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Um it tends to be that people in richer countries will often say that the world is in a worse place than it is. And it's actually the flip in poorer countries. So poorer countries are actually better at predicting like basic statistics, like how much of the world is, lives in extreme poverty, what share of the world's kids get vaccinated. They're actually much, much more accurate in predicting that. And they're much more optimistic about the future. And I think that just comes from being exposed to very rapid developments around them. If you live in a low-income country and you see that most kids are going to school and most are getting vaccinated and you're seeing these rapid developments, I can imagine you're very optimistic about where the world's going. If you live in a rich country and you maybe your parents experienced that a generation ago, but maybe the developments have not been as rapid and you don't see the massive changes happening in low-income countries. 
then I can imagine that you just feel this disconnect and don't see that the world's really progressing quickly. Yeah, I think um, uh, Gapminder, which was the organization that Hans Rosling set up, has this nice website called Dollar Street, where they sort of illustrate what does $2 a day get you? What does $4 a day get you? What does $8? What does $16? And it really makes a huge difference. It's like, yeah, if, if your granddad walked to school, you cycle to school, and you're, you expect your children to have a moped to get around, these are real material changes in your, in your well-being that will make your life better. Yeah, I mean, Hans Rosling always had this nice example of, so if you're in a rich country, you just look at people that live on less than $10 a day and you just think, oh, just they're just all poor. So you don't see any difference between someone that's earning $1 a day or $5 a day or $10 a day. You just class them all as poor. But actually, if you're the person living on $1 a day, a change to $10 a day is absolutely enormous and really, really life-changing. So I think it's that disconnect of, when you're near the bottom, really small changes can actually make a massive difference. But when you're near the top, when you look towards the bottom, just everyone looks the same. Yeah. So, yeah, I was uh, browsing through your tweets preparing for this and I, I saw you re- responding to someone else. You had a list of your top five most pressing problems in the world. I mean, you, maybe you can't remember them, but if, if, you, if you'd like to ever go, what, what do you think are the world's top pressing problems that we're facing at the moment? No, I can't remember them all. I can definitely remember my top one because I wrote a full article on it. So I think one of the world's most pressing problems is agricultural productivity and most specifically in sub-Saharan Africa. And I think the reason for that is twofold. I think there's a very strong environmental argument to that, but I think there's also just a really strong people argument to that. The reality is that if you look at changes in crop yields, as we discussed earlier across the world, they have basically increased in all regions. Unfortunately, they have increased in sub-Saharan Africa. And I realise that I'm talking about sub-Saharan Africa in a very broad sense. And of course, there are large differences across the region. So I'm not not just talking it as a a single entity. But broadly, if you look at most countries across sub-Saharan Africa, the growth in crop yields has been much, much slower than in other regions. And there's just very, very large yield gaps between the yields that they're getting and, and what they could be getting. And I think that's a problem for several reasons. It's a problem for an environmental lens, because if you're not increasing crop yields and you need more food, which sub-Saharan Africa does because it has a growing population, then you just need to use more and more land for agriculture. And that land has to come from somewhere and often comes from forests or natural habitat. So looking forward, one of the largest drivers of deforestation in the next couple of decades could probably be just expanding croplands in sub-Saharan Africa. Obviously, the way to counter that would to raise yields, and then you need less land for agriculture. So there's just some very obvious environmental lens to that problem. There's also just a very strong people lens where the majority of the population in sub-Saharan Africa still work in agriculture, and the only way to get out of that cycle and to alleviate people from extreme poverty is to increase agricultural productivity so they can grow more food using less labour inputs, using less land, and then move to more productive industries. So I think there's a very strong case for it in terms of poverty alleviation, and there's just also a very strong case for it in terms of stopping deforestation and environmental damage. So I think that's definitely my top one. I can't remember what the other ones I've put. So one of the roles that data has played in your life and in my life, and presumably Pete's as well, is a recognition that there are, in fact, many important trends that are improving 
that are going in the right direction, in some cases quite rapidly so, and that's not widely recognized. I want to ask the flip question. Are there any trends that are globally or regionally going in a much more negative direction than is widely recognized? This is a little different than the previous question as opposed to what's the most important problem. Are there things that are really getting worse that we're not aware of widely enough? I think there are a range of metrics that are going in the wrong direction. I guess the question is how widely known they are. I think they probably are. Most of them are widely known. Many of the environmental ones are obvious. Most of the social and and health ones are going in the right direction. I think we tried for a while to identify ones that were going in the wrong direction. The most obvious one there from a health perspective was obesity, which is just obviously going in the wrong direction nearly everywhere in the world. The other one, we discussed global inequality earlier. I think there's an obvious case that in particular countries, within country inequality is getting worse. I think there are a couple of problems that are maybe hidden or kind of underlying that I would be concerned about and think we need to focus more on. Like my colleague, Max Rosa, wrote an article on this recently where most of the trends in global education are very much going in a positive direction. So literacy rates are increasing the percentage of kids going to school is increasing and is at very high levels, even in the poorest countries. Where I think we're not putting enough attention is what kids are actually learning in school. So the share of children, especially in low-income countries, that despite going to school, by the end of school, just can't do basic reading or writing is just really appalling and is really an issue. So I think we need to focus not just on these high level metrics of is a kid in school or not, but also what they're learning in school. And that's just going to be so critical for development and poverty alleviation in the the decades to come. I think most of the environmental ones people are very much aware of. Maybe for me, I mean, it's definitely getting growing attention Although this kind of feeds into what we were discussing earlier, I'm not sure how much of it is because I live in a bubble or not. I don't think it's very much a bubble, but definitely the discussions around meat consumption and increasing global meat consumption is definitely a concern for me from an environmental perspective. I think that now gets a lot of awareness, but me, I don't know what that's like at a global level. At least in my bubble, it gets a lot of awareness. Yes, I think that meat eating was one of your other top five challenges. So maybe asking that a little bit more broadly, there's some strands in environmental thinking and how to deal with climate change. I mean, this is very crude, but on one hand is let's invent new technologies. Let's just change the incentives. And on the other is we need a change in values and culture in choice. On the meat one, this is quite concrete. How quickly are people adapting and changing to a vegetarian and vegan diet? And is it widespread enough? Is it happening outside of the West? What do the trends look like there? They are mixed, I would say that. They were mixed in the sense that, at least when you look at survey data, it looks quite positive, although too slow, in the sense that a growing share of people are saying they're trying to reduce meat consumption more, especially young people are more interested in a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet or a diet with less meat. I think that's all positive, although it's moving much too slowly um, compared to where we would need to be. I think for me, the worrying part is the disconnect between the survey data and the sales data. Like it's fine if people are saying that they want to reduce meat consumption, but when you look at sales data on total meat consumption, it's not really going down. It's maybe a bit in the UK. When you look at US data, it's not. 
where we have seen significant changes, the types of meat that people are eating, which from a climate perspective has been positive. So people seem to be switching from red meat to chicken, so decreasing beef, but increasing poultry, which there's also like a big debate there. That's good from a climate perspective because it has a lower footprint. There's concerns that you're actually switching the welfare equation there because you're killing more animals and they probably have poorer welfare standards. So that's like a thorny question as to what your priority is there. So I think it's a mixed bag. Definitely people's behaviours are not moving fast enough compared to where we would need to be. And there is this disconnect between what people say they're doing and then what we actually see in sales data. So sticking with the West, I mean, something I've wondered there is, are there pockets where there really is rapid social change? Because I guess I, you could be wondering, like, you know, what makeup will this change, you know, the reductions in emissions come from? Will it come from societal change or will it come from technological change? I mean, are there places where we're really seeing a, a dramatic change? I mean, are is there only 10% of Californian youth that eat meat? Or are there any really dramatic changes around the world? Not to that extent. When you look at demographic breakdown, it's definitely the young people at least identify in a much larger share as like flexitarian. So I think there's definitely some age effects there. But again, the percentage that strongly identifies me is still very, very high. So it's not like this really, really dramatic change. And then there's places that aren't the West, which is most of the world. Is there any signs there that, I don't know, Chinese meat-eating habits, Indian? I mean, India is a lot more vegetarian, but I mean, I guess China, Africa, what are things looking like there? Yeah, so India is largely an outlier. If you do the plot of meat consumption per person versus income per person, it's almost a straight line. Like there's very strongly correlated that the richer you are, the more meat you eat. And there has just been this normal pathway of as you get, as countries get richer, they just gravitate to more meat intensive diets. And that's a natural path that countries follow. And most countries are just following that path. India has been an outlier in that and eats significantly less meat per person than you would expect for a country of its level of income. But yes, I'd say again, across most of the world, there is still just this very direct relationship. I guess on, on the technological side of this question, how are meat alternatives, low carbon meat alternatives getting on? I think in the last couple of years, there's been very, very positive signs. I think the number of, and diversity of products on the market has just rapidly increased. I think there's increasing consumer acceptance of them. And I think what's going to be really key is the price point. One of the, the problems with meat substitutes in the past has been that they're either more expensive than meat or the same price, which for most people is just, they're just not going to make that switch if it's more expensive than meat. So I think just the price point is just really, really key. I think there is significant positive signs. I think there's still a lot to do in terms of consumer acceptance. Um, and just making it more of a social norm that you would just naturally gravitate towards the meat-free. Maybe this is controversial, but what I don't necessarily like in supermarkets is that they're in completely different sections. So you have to make a very active choice. I am going to go to the vegetarian meat substitute section rather than I'm just going to pick something for dinner. And OK, there's chicken right next to it is a, a cheaper chicken substitute that tastes just as good. I'm just going to pick that up. 
I think that's the problem. You, you almost need to, in a supermarket, identify as I'm the vegan, I'm going to go to the vegan section, or I'm the meat eater, I'm going to go to the meat section. I think that's a problem in kind of breaking down these social norms. I do want to add that it's important to keep in mind that some of these trends that we in the West identify as potentially negative, such as greater meat consumption. It's also important to keep in the context that you mentioned around the linear relationship between per capita income and meat consumption. On the one hand, I think the world would be better and certainly uh, animal welfare would be better with, with less meat consumption, but it's also indicative of less poverty, that as people move out of poverty, they're on the lower end, their meat consumption is going up. So if you look at a, a country that's less poor than it used to be, you can expect meat consumption to go up. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that side of the coin. No, that's uh, 100% true. And I think the there it's not necessarily just that as incomes rise, you just eat more meat. Basically, what happens is as your income rises, you move away from a diet that's predominantly just cheap staples. So basically cheap grains, rice, wheat, to one that's more diverse. So you eat more meat, you meet more pulses, you eat more fruit, you eat more veg. Nutritionally, that diversity is significantly better than this like monotonous diet that's based on staples. So it's not just this direct relationship with meat, it's just an overall diversification of of diets, which from a nutrition perspective is, is very, very positive. I think the question is, can you just substitute the meat with equally nutritious, affordable protein alternative? And if that's an option, and actually, if you can make it cheaper than meat, then for poor people in the world, that's a massive plus that you could, you could potentially provide very cheap, high quality protein. That would be amazing. Some of this points to or at least implies a controversial assertion, and that is that part of the path to sustainability might counterintuitively lie through economic growth. So there's this term, the, the environmental Kuznets curve. And the idea is that on a per capita basis, low-income populations, very low-income populations have low environmental impact. And at the higher end, if you can imagine Northern Europe, they're wealthy enough that they can invest in reducing their per capita environmental impact through green energy and expensive meat substitutes, et cetera. And that perhaps there's this hump, if you will, this hill around middle incomes of 10 to 20,000 US dollars per year where per capita environmental impact might be greatest. Does the evidence bear this out? Do we know enough about the relationship between environmental impact and income to have this, uh, I suppose it's a type of a resilient optimism that we just have to push through the hump. And once we all come out on the other side, then we'll have a, a world of, of Denmark's. Right. I think the environmental Kuznets curve holds true for some metrics. It certainly doesn't hold true for all of them. I think some of the strongest ones is like it's pretty true for air pollution, for example, where there is quite a clear pathway that countries go through to reach cleaner air. I think when it comes to climate, for example, I think probably the relationship is not as straightforward as that. I think the key point with the potential Kuznets curve and the climate is that we don't have time for all of the countries to go through the Kuznets curve. From a climate perspective, it's just not possible. The Kuznets curve is very, very long and takes a long time and we just can't do it that way. 
But where I think this ties into the growth equation is that I think rich countries are now in the position where they can very much invest in low carbon technologies. They can scale them up very quickly. They can make them very cheap. We've seen across a range of technologies, whether it's solar, wind, batteries, meat alternatives, you can drive a really, really substantial and quick cost decline. And the point, I think, of that investment and that growth is that you then make those technologies so cheap that countries don't have to go through the full curve. They can skip the whole curve and just go straight to the low carbon source. I think that's where I stand on that kind of growth debate. Slight change of subject, if if we can. Uh, Over the last few years, one area where presentation of data and data communication has been particularly important and high profile is COVID. And our world and data very quickly was able to produce high quality, diverse visual representations of COVID trends. And I can imagine how these different dimensions of of relevant data, you, you know, how do you present COVID? Is it the number of cases per population? Is it the portion of tests that are positive? Is it excess death, et cetera? And each of these metrics shines light on a different side of the COVID phenomena. They're all relevant, but no single one can tell the whole story. What were some of the sort of questions and trade-offs that the team at Our World and Data had and confronted and the challenges that they confronted in communicating COVID as it happened? Yeah, I mean, that was quite an experience for us and definitely not one that I'd anticipated going from being a climate scientist to an epidemiologist. But I'm really proud of the role that we played in that. Basically, what we've done for the last few years is daily provide global statistics on, as you say, confirmed cases, deaths, vaccinations, tests, hospitalizations. There are just a range of really key metrics. And what's really core to our work, and this is not just specific to COVID, but across the topics that we cover, is that we try to provide global in scope. So as many countries as possible. We make the data open access. Basically, what we're always trying to do is make sure that if someone has a question or wants to engage in a debate, they can find very, very high quality data quickly that can form the basis of that discussion. Like I think one of the key problems with Twitter is you can go round and round in circles about a particular debate when actually just having the the core data behind it as a starting point fights half the battle for you. So that was really core to our mission there. I think some of the really small stuff actually becomes the most important in this communication lens. I think we could spend a long time fretting over writing a really long, detailed article. Actually, most people are coming for the charts and they're coming for the data. So actually, half our job is just making sure that it's really, really clear what this metric measures. The title is really clear. The subtitle is really clear. It's really hard to miscommunicate or, or deliberately misrepresent the metric that you're showing. What's also key to that is making sure that the range of metrics and normalizations are available so that people can quickly switch between. So you can look at total cases, you can compare by per capita cases, you can look at deaths. Like all of these like stuff that seems really, really simple actually just becomes core to the, the mission of communication. And I think actually that extends beyond COVID. Like even if you talk about climate, quite a common question is which country has the highest CO2 emissions? And then the natural questions that come out of that is 
Well, are you talking total emissions? Are you talking cumulative? Is it per capita? Is it trade adjusted? Like what we always try to do is present all of the metrics, make all the metrics available so that people can then have the debates looking at different metrics, looking at different countries. But what's core is that the definitions are really clear. All of the data is transparent and available. And I think that actually is half the battle and just getting discussions going and centered around a logical point. Now, some say we live in a, a post-truth era. How are you doing? I mean, I guess uh, our world and data is a very truth-centric view of the world and where it's at. Does it get much mainstream traction or does it just attract uh, nerds like me and Jesse? <laughs> no, the last year we've had like over 100 million visitors. In the media, we get tens of citations a day. So like everything from, and that's what's really core to us. And really important is that we're not speaking to one particular side of the debate or we're not speaking to a bubble like we spoke about on Twitter earlier. We very much want to be this non-partisan, left, right, doesn't matter your ideology. You can start to form some basis of an argument and discussion around the facts. And actually what probably makes us most happy is if we see people from very different angles coming at a debate, but using the same data, so using our modern data, to then build arguments on top of one another and actually have a proper discussion where data is at the centre of it. So, yeah, we're very widely used in media across the spectrum by policymakers, by journalists, by teachers. It has like a really, really crazy reach these days. Well, that's great. Now, usually we like to end on an optimistic note, but I feel we've perhaps been a little too optimistic. Uh, so. What keeps you up at night uh, looking into the future? What are the things you worry about? The Definitely the, the question of agriculture productivity, the, my world's largest problem. I think progress there is, is looking very, very slow. And I think if we don't solve it, it's a big, big problem. I think the other big one for me that maybe doesn't get as much attention as it should because maybe climate change or other environmental factors do is just biodiversity loss. I think for me, that's probably maybe even bigger than climate change in terms of uh, environmental problem. Maybe not for humans, but I think for the rest of the species on the planet, it's just a massive problem. Well, thank you very much, Hannah. I think we balanced things out there a little. Uh, thanks for joining us. That was really great. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.